Welcome back to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. I'm delighted to have here today Dr. Rachel Beekman, one of our neurocritical care attendings, a neurointensivist, our fellowship director for the Neurocritical Care Fellowship. For those of you in residency who are thinking of applying to such a program, we have a wonderful program here at Yale. And Rachel presented a wonderful presentation at our clinical grand rounds in the last couple of weeks on the updated guidance regarding declaration of death by neurological criteria. So I would love to review that with our audience today. So Rachel, welcome. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks so much for having me. So Rachel, maybe you can give us an overview of why we need to talk about brain death and why that's so important as an element of education for neurology residents and other neurology trainees. Absolutely. So brain death is a core competency of all board certified neurologists. And while you may end up going to an institution where there is um, neurocritical care expertise, the vast majority of hospitals around the country have uh, neurologists, whether they're outpatient neurologists or, or hospitalists or uh, stroke physicians or neuro- neurointensivists performing brain death examinations. Uh, in a survey that we did of academic medical centers, a significant amount of those performing brain death examinations were non-critical care providers. And just like any other procedure, it requires practice and maintenance of certification. The new AAN brain death guidelines actually do comment on this, specifically stating that uh, folks who are doing brain death evaluation need to be appropriately credentialed and competent to perform the examination. And that requires continuing education. Tell us a little bit about what we do here at Yale in terms of our residency training? Yeah, so um, we started um, about two years ago now a brain death simulation for our PGY3 and PGY4 neurology residents. And we have neurointensivists and uh, senior neurocritical care fellows who help with those simulations. And during those simulations, we have a one-hour, one-on-one session with the trainee to go through a case. And that could be identifying that the patient meets prerequisites for testing, making sure that all the labs and hemodynamics are appropriate for testing, reviewing neuroimaging to identify catastrophic irreversible brain injury, performing the coma exam, performing an apnea test, deciding on whether ancillary testing is needed, declaring death, and then communicating those results to the family. And we found that this has been very beneficial to our trainees as many trainees will go through their entire residency and maybe only be exposed to one or two cases throughout their training. Yeah, it's sort of the perfect venue for simulation-based training, a relatively low-frequency event, a relatively structured approach to the care, and a fairly straightforward examination. You'll get into some of the nuances, but a fairly straightforward examination that you could do with a mannequin. So Rachel, I think you outlined some of the common components, the, the core components of brain death testing, but maybe you could elaborate on each of these sort of the components of brain death and and what the neurologist's role is in determining those. Absolutely. So the number one and most important component of brain death testing is establishing irreversibility. It's really important to make sure that there is an etiology of coma that is capable of causing whole brain death and that that etiology is irreversible. This is probably the number one area that practitioners get into trouble in. We had a case years ago of a patient who um, had AMSAN, so a severe Guillain-Barre axonal variant, who had progression to what looked like whole brain death because there was involvement of all of his brainstem reflexes. But this patient did not meet 
meet criteria for brain death testing as his neuroimaging did not show an etiology consistent with whole brain death. And that patient went on to have a workup identify the etiology as Guillain-Barre and went on to have neurologic recovery after treatment with immunotherapy. So it is very vital that we identify the etiology of catastrophic brain injury and that that etiology is irreversible. We have to exclude confounding conditions. So when patients are cold, they might present with coma, but that coma is reversible when that patient is warmed. We need to make sure that the patient is not hypotensive, that any severe electrolyte disturbance has been corrected, that treatable metabolic disorders like hyperammonemia have been treated, that drug intoxication is not confounding our assessment, and that if the patient received neuromuscular blockade, that a train of four has been done and the patient is no longer experiencing paralysis. Once irreversibility has been met, then you can go on to um, assess coma, brainstem, areflexia, and apnea, which are the key components of brain death. And I think we'll talk a little bit later about ancillary testing and the role that that plays. But I think it's important to emphasize that the clinical determination of irreversible catastrophic brain injury, you know, that's a there's real skill and knowledge involved among neurologists in doing that. And then the coma, brainstem, areflexia, and apnea, those have to be established first whenever possible before ancillary testing is considered. Is that correct? Absolutely. And the new guidelines are very specific about this, that it is important that all confounding conditions that can be corrected must be corrected. That means that someone who presents hypothermic must be warmed, maintained at normothermia, so above 36 degrees, for 24 hours prior to testing. The guidelines also specifically state that there needs to be a period of observation. So we should not be doing testing immediately when someone comes in. There needs to be a period of observation to ensure that anything that's potentially reversible had a chance to be reversed. Can you run through some of the other specific requirements and specific components of the 2023 guidelines and some of the updates that we have with those? You mentioned a few, but I'd, I'd love to hear about the updates. Absolutely. So the, the new guidelines are, are more stringent. And the reason for this is to standardize the evaluation of brain death and to make sure that people across the country are not being exposed to a brain death evaluation when they don't meet the, the criteria for testing. So some of the specific requirements in the new guidelines are for patients with a posterior fossa injury that uh, they may have brainstem areflexia and apnea, but they are not suitable for brain death evaluation until they have catastrophic supertentorial injury. And so those patients need to be observed. They need to have repeat imaging when they do develop fixed and dilated pupils. That imaging needs to show involvement of the supertentorial structures, so gray-white loss and cerebral edema with herniation for them to be suitable for brain death testing. We talked a little bit about this wait period. So there is a wait period for 24 hours and uh, there's a longer wait period in pediatrics, but in adult patients, there's also a wait period for temperature. So a large proportion of patients who do end up progressing to brain death come in as out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And if those patients are cooled, we need to rewarm them and then wait 24 hours of maintaining 36 degrees prior to proceeding with brain death testing. We talked about this also, but ancillary testing cannot be used in lieu of correct hypothermia or in lieu of holding sedating medications. 
it may be needed in patients who have something that's uncorrectable. So patient is on hemodialysis, but their uh, BUN is still elevated. You might proceed with an ancillary test because you can't be sure that that's not confounding their examination. But ancillary testing should not be in, uh, in lieu of correcting those confounding conditions. And then the new guidelines also made very clear that apnea is a key component of brain death evaluation and that it must be attempted in all patients who are stable to proceed with an apnea test. The criteria for a positive apnea test has been specified more clearly in the new guidelines and that there are different guidelines for patients who have chronic CO2 retention and those who do not have chronic CO2 retention. Yeah. And so I guess there was the specific details about the chronic CO2 retainers that sometimes we don't know what a baseline CO2 level was, right? And the older guidelines there, as I remember, the criteria for positivity were based on a certain increment above the baseline CO2. If we don't have that information, it can be difficult. And I guess the new guidelines require that an ancillary test is required in those circumstances because we can't know. So in many ways, it seems like from my reading as a non-expert that the new guidelines are really just much more rigorous and much more granular and really have a heavy emphasis on ensuring that we're not missing patients who may have some preserved brain function. Absolutely. These guidelines are more rigorous. They standardize many components that previously were left up to discretion. There's also tables that come with the new guidelines to give you references. So what is an electrolyte abnormality that should make you uncomfortable? And so they give you guidelines. While the guidelines provide more specific recommendations, these recommendations are, are guidelines and they need to be interpreted for the patient in front of you. So a sodium of 160 may be significant for one patient. And for another patient, you might think that that's not confounding their examination. That's a incredibly complex circumstances. And we will include a link to the new American Academy of Neurology guidelines in the show notes to this show. So Rachel, we will point our listeners back to our previous podcast that we recorded maybe about almost two years ago now on determination of death by neurological criteria. And I think much of that information holds. I think you've included some new information. And I think one really effective way to incorporate some of the nuances of the new information is to run through a few cases. So I think you have two or three cases you're going to run through and talk about here. Yes. So I'm going to start with case one, a 55-year-old female with no past medical history who presented with worst headache of life while shopping. On ED arrival, her GCS was 12, and she subsequently declined to a GCS of three. She required emergent intubation and was treated with hyperosmolar therapy without improvement in her examination. I'm showing her CAT scan, and her CAT scan showed hemorrhage in the posterior fossa with obstructive hydrocephalus, but preserved gray-white matter differentiation supertentorily. So this is the case you talked about, a posterior fossa dysfunction, quite severe posterior fossa dysfunction, but not yet evidence of catastrophic supertentorial injury. Absolutely. So on her examination, she is uh, has a temperature of 36.2. Her blood pressure is 165 over 87. Heart rate is 43. She's breathing at a set rate on the ventilator. She was intubated, and so she received fentanyl 15 minutes prior. She got succinylcholine for intubation one hour prior. Her pupils are pinpoint and non-reactive no corneal reflex, no oculocephalic reflex, no eye movement with cold calorics, no cough, no gag, no spontaneous breathing, and no response to painful stimuli. So we cannot proceed with apnea testing in this patient for several reasons. So one of them, Jeremy mentioned, the imaging is not consistent with whole brain death. This patient did not meet the prerequisites for testing. But other considerations that you need to pay attention to is that this patient received fentanyl. 15 minutes is insufficient to wash out fentanyl. Succinylcholine was used for intubation and 
while that should be out of your system within five, 10 minutes, there are people who have a prolonged effect. So if you are going to perform brain death testing on someone who received a neuromuscular blockade, you have to proceed with a train of four and make sure that they are no longer paralyzed. And then this patient also has pinpoint non-reactive pupils, which are not consistent with whole brain death. Whole brain death requires mid-position or larger non-reactive pupils, so four millimeters or larger. And the fact that she has pinpoint non-reactive pupils should key you in to that this is not whole brain death and that there's something going on with the brainstem. I was going to say for the residents who may do brain death simulation testing at their own institution, this is one of our stop points, sometimes a classic stop point in a simulation of brain death examination. If you see small non-reactive pupil, that's that's a point to stop and reconsider. Those are sort of classic Pontine pupils, right? If you read the textbook, so that's, yes. that's a great example. So then how long do you need to observe, right? So we talked about for hypothermia that you need to observe for 24 hours. Well, this patient's not hypothermic, but clearly there's someone who is at risk for progression to brain death, but don't currently meet criteria for testing. So your trigger point for these patients should be the development of fixed and dilated pupils, which may be your trigger to evaluate for whole brain death. And that patient at that time needs a head CT repeated to evaluate for catastrophic supertentorial injury. As we discussed, you also need to do a train of four to rule out ongoing paralysis. And that you need five half-lives of sedation clearance, which is about 35 hours for fentanyl. One really important point, though, is that the, the guidelines state that you should get a UTOX when appropriate. The challenge with a UTOX is that you might have some drugs that stay in your urine for longer than they're metabolically active. So we often, unfortunately, the opioid epidemic is worsening, and we're seeing a lot of patients who are coming in with fentanyl overdose arrests. And those patients are at high risk for brain death. Those patients typically progress to brain death somewhere between two and five days post-cardiac arrest. And that fentanyl may not still be in their system, but it might still turn up positive in their UTOX. And so you have to be able to evaluate if you think that that positive fentanyl in the UTOX is impacting their exam or not. Yeah, these are critically important points, right? It, it's, it goes back to that clinical judgment. And it's why I feel blessed at an institution like ours that we have neurointensivists that we can call. I think it's easier when people are working in an institution where this is not easily available. But again, that's where the specific guidance, I think the key points of the guidelines and some of the educational uh, things you can do with the guidelines, I think are going to really help. Yeah. And I think one of the things that the guidelines are clear about is if you are not sure, if you think it could be potentially confounding your exam, you either wait longer and give more time for that drug to metabolize, or in addition to doing everything else with apnea testing, you can add an ancillary test if you feel that there might be something confounding your assessment. Those are excellent points. All right, Rachel, how about another case? I think that was a great example of a case that had several pause points. Why why don't we have another to highlight some of these new updates in the guidance? Yes. So we spoke a little bit about um, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and and drug overdose, which is a very common population, unfortunately, that we see that does progress to brain death. So we can do a case like that. So we have a 42-year-old gentleman with a past medical history of polysubstance abuse who presents to the emergency department after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The arrest was unwitnessed, and he did not receive bystander CPR. His initial rhythm was pulseless electrical alternance. On initial evaluation, his temperature is 36.5. On evaluation, he has fixed and dilated pupils, no corneal, no cough, no gag, no response to noxious, and he's breathing at the set rate on the ventilator. His neuroimaging is performed, and he has widespread catastrophic brain injury with pseudosub 
subarachnoid hemorrhage sign, evidence of herniation, and diffuse gray-white loss. So can we proceed on day one with brain death testing? No, right? There's an observation period for patients who have suffered a cardiac arrest of at least 24 hours. His course is that he was cooled. He was treated with cooling and connected to an Arctic Sun device. And then the next day, the medical team wants to know if they can perform brain death testing. It's been 24 hours. You review his vital signs and identify that his temperature is 34 degrees. They understand that his temperature is 34 degrees, but, but still want to proceed and and they ordered a nuclear medicine test. So how do we proceed? So the new guidelines are very clear on this. We cannot proceed with nuclear medicine testing. We need to rewarm him to 36 degrees, wait 24 hours with him at normal thermic ranges. And then if he meets criteria for testing, then we can proceed with brain death testing. One thing that's you know important to think about for patients who have suffered an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is who is likely to progress to brain death early? Is there anything that we can use to identify if someone's likely to progress to brain death? And can that help us provide anticipatory guidance and maybe focus on euthermia or normothermia in that patient population to avoid this process where we actually need to prolong the time until we're able to proceed with testing? So there is a score called the brain death risk score, and there are several other scores out there that look at some clinical variables to identify patients who are at high risk for progression to brain death. This particular score is looking at patients who have suffered an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and gives points based on rhythm. So non-shockable rhythm gets a point based on etiology of arrest. So unfortunately, patients who have an acute intoxication or overdose are at higher risk for brain death, and so they get a point for that etiology. The Presence of diffuse loss of gray-white matter differentiation or sulcal effacement on a head CT within 24 hours gives you points. Your full outline of unresponsiveness score, so a four score of zero, so brainstem areaflexia, not breathing above a ventilator, no motor response, and no eye opening. And then age, so younger patients are at higher risk of progression to brain death. And that score is a zero to seven points. And the higher your score with the inflection point being five, the higher your risk of brain death. And so for this patient that we just discussed, his brain death risk score was a seven, giving him somewhere between an 80 to 100% likelihood of progressing to brain death. And that might help us in the early phase in that his early care should be focused on coordination and collaboration with the OPO, providing anticipatory guidance to the ICU that's going to take care of this patient, focusing on euthermia, and then looking for things like diabetes insipidus, which are very common in patients who are progressing to brain death. And sorry, you said an abbreviation there, OPO. Some of our listeners might not be fully familiar with that? What's yes. an OPO? Thank you. The Organ Procurement Organization. Perfect. Well, you know, one, one of the exciting things about these types of validated tools is I think that as we move further into the 21st century, we can use ele- the electronic medical record and other digital tools to help us calculate some of these scores, right? And help guide our decision-making. Again, as we've said from the start, the art of the medicine is, art, art of medicine is still strong. There's a lot of human judgment that, that's necessary. I don't think we're be taken over by artificial intelligence just yet. But these types of validated scores can really help us, as you said, plan and anticipate and be ready for what is going to happen because it's often easier when you're prepared to move to the next steps in the care of the patient. So how about a third case? Yeah. So we were talking about having anticipatory guidance in someone who is at high risk for progression to brain death. And so that becomes really important in managing hemodynamic failure. So we know 
know that as someone is progressing to brain death, that herniation event results in a loss of hypothalamic pituitary axis hormones and can cause vasoplegia and hypotension. And so that confounded with cardiac, uh, poor cardiac contractility and hypovolemia in the setting of diabetes insipidus could lead to someone progressively deteriorating. Part of why brain death was established is to ensure that patients who want to be registered donors or want to help others have the ability to. And so it's really important to identify those patients who are at risk for progression to brain death and hemodynamically optimize them. So this case that I'm going to discuss really hones in on that point. This is a 39-year-old female with high blood pressure who presented in a setting of a ruptured aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. This patient was found unresponsive and had been down for several hours. On arrival, unfortunately, the CAT scan showed diffuse subarachnoid hemorrhage, hydrocephalus, global cerebral edema, and transtentorial herniation. And this patient had fixed and dilated pupils. This patient was someone who was recognized to be a registered organ donor. This patient was managed with vasopressors and fluid resuscitation. But unfortunately, due to severe metabolic acidemia, despite the use of a bicarbonate drip, continued to become more and more hemodynamically unstable and was unable to be resuscitated. So are there things that we can do in addition to our normal resuscitation to optimize patients who are registered organ donors? Well, there's something called the T4 protocol that uses methylprednisolone, insulin, levothyroxine, bolus, and infusion, and dextrose to manage the loss of the hypothalamic pituitary hormones and can hemodynamically stabilize a patient so it can significantly reduce your vasopressor requirements, but also can improve cardiac contractility. And this might be a medication that you want to provide early in patients who are hemodynamically unstable during herniation. And Rachel, I think you really highlight an important point here, right? We want to, taking a step back, we want to make an accurate diagnosis of death by neurological criteria to make sure that we serve the patient who has died and their family and also to make sure that we're doing the right things for society and doing the right things for ensuring that if somebody wished to be an organ donor, express that need, maybe had some personal reason for feeling strongly about that, we're able to play an important role in making an accurate diagnosis and carrying out that patient's wishes as best as we can, right? Absolutely. And I think one important point is that physicians are will use this T4 protocol sometimes after family member consents to organ donation. But it can be used prior to the brain death declaration and can be very helpful to hemodynamically stabilize someone for testing. So a patient needs to have an adequate blood pressure. Actually, the new guidelines have a mean arterial pressure over, over 75 as a requirement, which is, is new. It typically was a, a systolic blood pressure above 100. It's now a systolic blood pressure above 100 and a MAP greater than 75. That in these patients could be hard to achieve. And so sometimes you need vasopressors, fluid resuscitation, you might need treatment of diabetes insipidus, but this can be an extra tool to help you stabilize a patient for testing. Rachel, I think you mentioned earlier some updates to the criteria for ancillary testing. Do you want to run us through those? Absolutely. So 
The biggest change is that EEG is no longer in the list of acceptable ancillary tests. So the absence of EEG activity doesn't provide any information around brainstem function, and for this reason has been removed from the guidelines. The three tests that are acceptable for ancillary testing are angiography, which is the gold standard, a SPECT, so a nuclear medicine flow study, and a transcranial Doppler. Most hospitals around the country are using SPECT and in some cases, angiography. Transcranial Doppler can be very helpful and does not require transportation of the patient, but it is very operator dependent. And it is important that you have a baseline that shows adequate windows so that if you do not see flow in the intracranial arteries, that you know it's because it's not there and not because your windows are inadequate. An important element here is a big change for me, right? EEG not being part of the list of acceptable ancillary tests. And I think there's lots of legitimate reasons for that in terms of the te- technical complexity of the specific protocols for EEG and determination of death by neurological criteria. And because we have so many other excellent options. I think one of the other things that was a big change for the guidelines is the importance on a- of apnea testing. So in the past, if someone has required an ancillary test, apnea testing was not always pursued. But the guidelines are very clear for the 2023 American Academy of Neurology guidelines that apnea testing should be performed in all patients. If they need ancillary testing, they will get ancillary testing in addition to apnea testing. And so it is important to think about what tools we have to optimize patients for apnea testing. And that does mean that patients who are hypoxemic and may be on higher PEEP may actually be able to undergo apnea testing using a flow insufflating bag with a functioning PEEP valve. Or there are other tools that you can use so you can keep the patient on the mechanical ventilator in CPAP PEP mode, but disable the backup apnea ventilation, disable the apnea alarm, remove condensation from the circuit, or adjust the trigger sensitivity to avoid auto-triggering from cardiac oscillations. And so there are tools that we can use to make sure that we are providing an apnea test to all patients who are safe to perform apnea in. Do you want to run us through some of this sort of last tips and tricks? I think this was a nice summary and something that we had discussed in our prior podcast and maybe a, a great place to close. Absolutely. So I think the most important thing when talking about brain death, both with your colleagues and with families, is that brain death is a legal diagnosis of death. Consent is not required. And it is actually our duty to proceed with brain death testing when someone meets criteria. It is important to also recognize that family should be informed of neurologic death and the the plans for evaluation prior to testing. And the new guidelines specifically state this, but families should be given an opportunity or the option option to observe testing. And I often find that this helps families understand the diagnosis. They're able to witness the apnea test and observe that their loved one has no ability to breathe. And this makes their understanding of what brain death is a lot more clear. It's important that once the determination has been made, that family is informed, but also that they're given a time of death. So the time of death in someone who is brain dead, who has been declared brain dead, is the time of the result of the apnea test or the time of the reading or report of the ancillary test. But it is important that that is the time of death. The time of death is not the time that the heart stops if that happens days later. And so our communication of time of death could be very helpful to the family. Any other tips about communicating? And I know we covered this in our last podcast, but I think it's so important that it deserves some repetition. So one of the things that's very important is that you want to do most of the conversation
conversation with the family about what brain death is, what the testing is, what the results are likely to be on the front end. So when I talk to a family member, I will always communicate that I'm proceeding with testing and that I anticipate that my testing will be confirmatory. And if it is, that means that when we speak next, that I will be giving you time of death. I think it's important to be very clear about that, to give them the time to process, understand, ask questions before you even proceed with testing. This allows you to understand if there are religious objections or if there is an uncertainty about what you said. You can handle these these challenges up front, which become much more challenging to deal with if you've proceeded with testing prior to making sure that the family understands what you're doing. And it also makes the communication on the back end when you are providing time of death a lot easier because the family has had time to ask their questions and process what is happening. We are also, as physicians, obliged to coordinate and collaborate with the organ procurement organization and give them an opportunity to discuss next steps with the family. By us communicating up front and giving them that time to process, it allows the communication with the organ procurement organization to be more smooth and the family to be ready to discuss next steps. It is important, though, that when you discuss next steps, that you need to be a little bit vague on the timeline for removal of organ support. Be clear that the ventilator is organ support, not life support. And that when you discuss next steps with the family, that you open the door for the organ organ procurement organization to approach them without using or mentioning the term organ donation. We as physicians need to be separate from the process, but we want to create an opportunity for communication. And so I usually do that by saying that at end of life, there are other teams in the hospital who will talk to you. And then I will say, are you ready to just to speak to those other teams? So you can use the word other teams, but you want to create that opportunity. Well, Rachel, I really appreciate you spending some time with us and going over all of this. I think all our listeners now know even more how critically important it is to do this well and to do it right and to do it the right way. And I always learn so much from you about this and many other things. And you are passionate about this. And I think it could do a lot of good for a lot of people. So thanks for sharing this. And I, I know this will be very useful to our listeners. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.